You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hello, Natalia. It's going well. How are you? It's going well. I am super excited for this episode because it will be a trip down memory lane. We're going to be talking about counterfeiting CDs and Beanie Babies. Well, Beanie Babies aren't covered in this episode, but they're counterfeited. So we were we were having a conversation before we started recording about you know things that have been counterfeited and one of the examples that we stumbled upon was Beanie Babies. And I said, what's a Beanie Baby? And Natalia said, oh, how do you not know what Beanie Babies are? So 15 minutes ago, you you educated me on a Beanie Baby and I've learned something about you is that you collected Beanie Babies. Is that right? You were in the Beanie Baby fad. You're in the, the trend. Oh, yes, yes. Beanie Babies and Pokemon cards, I definitely collected them. Do you still have your Pokemon cards? Yes, yes, I do. And do you still have your Beanie Babies? I've got one Beanie Baby left. Do you know with certainty that it is not a counterfeit Beanie Baby? (gasps) I don't, but I don't think I want to find out. If only there was some kind of technology, maybe a a hologram or something embedded into the Beanie Baby for you to have a high degree of certainty (laughs) that it was real. And I'm talking about holograms because our guest on the podcast today, Donald Keating from the DCU, walks us through his journey into security and his path to Microsoft and how he spent uh, a lot of his career in the anti-counterfeiting space. And we talked about CDs. We talked about counterfeiting CDs and optical discs. This was very exciting for me. We talk about the period in time when I was actually joining Microsoft, which is when Windows XP was coming out. And so the whole, you know, hologram on the CD and you hold it up to the light and there'd be different colors and pictures. Like that was all very exciting. I guess that must have been early 2000s. That was that was super exciting when that was happening. So this was a this was a great conversation and I think we also talk about chickens at some point too. I don't I'm not sure how we got there, but we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. And with that, I feel like we shouldn't keep people hanging onto the pod. Onto the pod. Hi Donald, welcome back to Security Unlocked. Thanks for joining us for a second time. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Donald, you are the Director of Research and Innovation of the Digital Crime Unit. I know that you've talked a little bit about what you did in our last episode, but would you mind giving the audience a refresher? What does a a day in the life of Donald look like in the Digital Crimes Unit? Well, each day is different, obviously, because when you're sort of working on the on the side of security and crime fighting, people evolve very rapidly. So there is no set pattern of what I do every day. But I am lucky to have a relatively unique position 
in the DCU, we call the Digital Crimes Unit, in that I work across all of the different pillars that, that we fight. And I also get the opportunity to work, work across the company. So we're always looking for new techniques, new data sources, and new crime mechanics. And I tend to get involved in, in the things that are new. So it's a very interesting job. As someone said, there's not many jobs where you wake up in the morning and look at the news and say, what's going to be on my plate today? But <laughs> working in this space tends to be that sort of a job. And how did you end up in this role? What has been your path, not just to Microsoft, but security? I know, a big question. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, Mammy Keating and Daddy Keating met. Um, so if where was that, Donald? Sorry? <laughs> where, where was that? Yeah, where that was that? In, that was in Ireland. So I paint, grew up paint us the I, picture. Like it's tell I want beautiful rolling green countrysides. I want <laughs> paint me that beautiful picture of Ireland. Oh well, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go back that far. It's, that's before Moses was a boy. <laughs> so my parents are Irish. Uh, father an engineer, my grandfather an artist, my other grandfather was a blacksmith. So sort of technology had always been in the family. When I was growing up, uh, I guess my parents had been a product of the, of the war and Ireland at the best of times didn't have very much. So the, the ability to make things and figure things out from first principles was always pretty important uh, in my family. So I grew up, my brother's uh, an engineer, a civil engineer, built a very successful company in civil engineering. So I guess I was the black sheep of the family. I became a physicist. And when I graduated from physics, it was in the 1980s. I won't say exactly when, but the unemployment rate in Ireland at the time was in the high 20s, I believe. And for new graduates, there was pretty much two, three jobs a year going. And I certainly wasn't in the top two or three percent of the graduates coming out of the country. So I emigrated like a lot of Irish people do. And my first stop was the UK. So I got a job as a young, very green physicist. The only advantage I have is I had done applied physics. So I was able to run a lathe as well as do some calculations. And I started to work for a, a UK company that was a venture capital funded startup looking at some very interesting optical technology. So my major was in optoelectronics and this company was involved in the research into storage media. And at the time, CD audio had been quite the technology, recordable CD had not been yet invented, but there was a space in the market for what was considered archival media. And this company had some very innovative and patented technology, which we call Matai. It was a, a recordable media that effectively made a mechanical mark. So it wasn't just a change of reflection. There was actually a mechanical mark on the media. And I won't even go into the capacities of these things in, in today's world. Almost like a vinyl record? Uh, well, uh, almost like a vinyl record, but at a nanoscale. So a laser would, what normally it would do with recordable media is a dye would absorb or not absorb. 
and allow light through to the reflective layer beneath. The trick of this technology called Worm, uh, right once read Manny, was a layer that looked a little bit like an egg box. And when the laser hit the texture, it would blow a bubble in the egg box, therefore making it reflective. And the company name was Plasmon, which actually refers to a physical phenomenon that means a surface that the uh, incident light gets redirected along the surface of the incident plane. So it was just an interesting piece of technology. I worked for that company for six years, starting out knowing nothing, and worked for an incredible mentor engineer, a guy by the name of Bob Longman, who taught many engineers like me. He was quite a legend. And through that company, it was like pure R&D work. We knew what the end goal was, but how to get there was entirely uncharted. So we got to work on all sorts of interesting technologies. But that really was the beginning of a skill set that I think everyone in security needs, and in particular in research innovation. It's when there aren't train tracks, how can you look at a problem split it into smaller problems and do things that you can measure, observe, but basically articulate, well, okay, these three things happen, therefore what does it mean for the bigger picture? So that reframing the question was training that I got right when I, when I graduated. So that was the start. I think I interrupted you, Donald, but what was the, did you tell us what was the capacity? What was the storage capacity of this early CD technology? <laughs> I'm assuming oh it was small. God, it was, I'm assuming that's that's the giggle. It was small, yeah. <laughs> 540 megabytes was considered this huge, enormous storage capacity. But that's not much smaller than the the theoretical max of a CD, isn't it? Didn't CD only get to about 714 meg or something? Yeah, yeah, but that that was yeah that was a CDR, and then we got DVDR, and yeah. But these are capacities like if you pick a USB now. The tiny, tiny, tiny surface area will contain 10 times that capacity. You know, you look at floppy disks and, you know, you look at the evolution of it. Truly, the laws of physics are being uh, like hard disk drives, which I, at one stage, I worked for Seagate. I might come to that in my narrative. But even when I was at Seagate in the 90s, the idea that you were coming close to the capacity of what a platter could hold. They continue, hard drives continue to push the limits. They're still uh, following Moore's law at a phenomenal rate. Like if you look at a technology like hard drive and you had to start that from scratch, people would say that's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to get that performance, you know, even if you're a huge design team. But that's the great thing about evolution. You start off with something small, you tweak it, you tweak it, you tweak it, you put economic pressure on it to make it faster and bigger and you end up with where we have hard drives today same with solid state solid state technology in another 20 years time there will still be solid state and it'll be faster and bigger and better and all the rest of it i thought you were going to be sort of comparing that early technology that mechan- that mechanical i forget the the words you use but that mechanical mark on the disc i thought you might have been comparing that to sort of later um, technologies for writing to a CD, but you were you were talking about CDs in general. Yes, the the capacity of a CD is is obviously very very small. 
Yeah. So the, the sorts of people that were interested in it were people who needed archival technology. So uh, they worked with the British Library, for instance, was one of their um, audiences, but also company records and, you know, things that needed very good archival life. So what you might not know is that your CDR, um, if you've kept it in a drawer for 20 years, will not be producing all the pictures that you thought you'd put onto your CDR. Um, those technologies break down relatively quickly. So this was a, a technology that they said would um, stay on the shelf for a long time. Why was that? The material is sort of susceptible to pressure change, temperature change? What, what, what is it? Well, with a recordable CD, for instance, a die, and dies tend not to be not to be stable. You know, you look at an old book, even when it's closed up, the pictures in the in your old books will be faded from what they were. Well, if you need that high contrast um, and you have fading with your die, you're going to lose fidelity. That's really just comparing this technology and CDR, which is you know. But but the the bit that I'm getting to is. You might have recording mechanisms that store data for a long time, but the drives that read those do not store for a long time. So back then it was all SCSI interfaces. To find a, a PC with the SCSI interface now would be a <laughs> would be a whole a whole piece of work. So the reason the cloud is going to be so much better for storing data is regardless of what the readout technology is, it's going to evolve with the cloud. I was kind of lucky in my career and that I was in the right place at the right time. So I worked for a number of companies that basically built CD manufacturing in Ireland. I hopped around those companies being part of the supply chain to Microsoft. So the very first indication of security, Microsoft introduced what we called an inner band hologram on, I want to say it was Windows 98. It was a security feature to try and make counterfeiting of the Windows 98 disk more difficult. Long story short, Microsoft decided themselves that they wanted a CD manufacturing plant and they recruited me. At the time, I really didn't want to work for Microsoft. I'd been a supplier to them and they had been pretty aggressive as customers. So I, I wasn't a terribly keen employee, but they made it worth my while to join Microsoft to build them a CD-ROM plant in Dublin, which I did. We got that up and running. And just at that time, a team in the U.S. wanted even more secure CD manufacturing. So at the time, one of the great ways of making money very easily was to produce either Office 97 or Windows 98 CDs and sell them. Now, you could make money in different ways. You could just bootleg them and make recordable CDs. But people then knew they were buying something cheap and cheerful. There was, you get a few bucks for it, but you weren't going to make big dollars. What the more sophisticated criminals did is they made visual pass-offs, like very, very good pass-offs of the product, package them up, and then even put it into the supply chain. So today everyone is conscious of supply chain attacks. Solar winds being an example. And in, in the recent past, supply chain attacks have been all the business. But if you go back to those times, people didn't really consider it a supply chain attack. And one of the significant vulnerabilities in the software industry back then was there was this whole world of people prepared to make very, very sophisticated counterfeits. So 
I was working for Microsoft at the time, and there had been some legal cases chasing down counterfeiters. And the, they had a newly appointed attorney in Europe looking after the counterfeiting team. And we got talking, and it was just one of those things that, you know, you suddenly meet someone who knows what they really want to do. And I knew how the product was made. And I said, look, all, all of the, the way you're going about this identification of counterfeit is all wrong. You know, the, the example, I think, was that if something was misprinted, it was a, if it was badly printed disc, it must be counterfeit. Well, I had run an, enough CD plans to know you can have a bad day in printing discs. So that was the start of the concept of a proper forensic analytic lab that would look at product and say this is genuine or counterfeit. And that really was the start of getting into the security space. And then I guess it was in the year 2000, 2001 maybe. What was your next step within Microsoft? What what brought you to the role you have today? Yeah, so actually at the time when, when I met the legal team for the first time, I, I was transitioning out from running the CD plant to working on the anti-counterfeiting technologies. In fact, I used to, I kind of had a role that was mostly based in the U.S., uh, looking at hologram technology, fingerprinting technology, just a, a variety of technologies are going to be used to protect our products. But it became more and more interesting to me to chase the criminals rather than to try and protect the product. There was lots of people focused on protecting the product. There was very few people uh, focused on on locking up the crooks. And I think that was from one side, from the traditional counterfeiting side, one of the things that you got to learn is the economics of being a, a criminal. And they would say themselves as, as business people, but what's their motivation? How do they do it? You know, how do they communicate? So that was way back then, that seemed to be very interesting and exciting. So I did more and more of that. Like I said, I went around the world. I was on raids all over the world of, of plants producing counterfeit discs. Did you share any examples? <laughs> yeah, 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 I can. So the, the most recent one, actually, it's back in 2013 because we pretty much stopped doing physical counterfeiting. But back in 2013, 2014, there was a plant in the Ukraine that had been, it, it had belonged to the old regime. There's a new regime comes in, so they re-raid the plant. And I, I got called in just because I knew enough about how to obtain evidence from a CD plant. So they just wanted a kind of an expert from Microsoft to help them obtain the evidence from the plant. But I arrived at this factory, bought there by law enforcement, and they had these huge doors, big, enormous, big steel doors. But the bit that appealed to me was two feet to the right of the door, there was actually a hole blown on the wall. The cops had to do the raid arrived up, so that door's too secure, but the wall's not so secure. So they went through the wall. I've done cases in, in Russia also. So everyone knows that counterfeiting is a problem. But one of the ways you, st- you protect yourself is if you have someone who is on the law enforcement side of the house who will not raid plants that they're kind of under their protection. But what happens when you stop paying the protection money? So it turns out that Microsoft got pulled in because someone wasn't paying their protection money uh, anymore. Uh, Law enforcement raided the facility. 
I went there to analyze the evidence and testify that, yes, this in fact was Microsoft product that was being counterfeited. When the plant that had been raided realized that the law enforcement were taking it seriously, they obviously paid their dues again. So I'm in this police station in the morning. Uh, we're taking the evidence, you know, gathering up the notes. And when you're handling evidence, you have these tags. So you take something out, do your analysis, and then you, you seal the bag and, and sign it. Suddenly, there's an urgent request to go to lunch at, you know, 1130 or something. Never a man to dodge lunch. We went <laughs> off to lunch, but the lunch went on about three hours. And when we came back, I'm looking at my pile and I see all this stuff that I already examined, but they're not my seals, it's not my signature. And I said, this is not what I looked at this morning. Oh yeah, that's, that's what you looked at this morning. <laughs> it was a sort of environment where you don't, don't go and argue with anyone. So we just stepped away from that. There was some, some follow-up, but there was no confirmation that what that plant had been producing was Microsoft counterfeits and it all gets swept under the carpet. Donna, when I hear the word raid, though, I think of paramilitary, I think of guns and, and, and all that. Is my mental image accurate? Well, how, how sort of scary, how dangerous were these, these raids you were a part of? Or were they a bit more sort of, well, yeah, that, that, that's my question. So generally with counterfeiting, they tend to be, they're not dangerous. So sometimes, mostly I would get called in after the raid had happened. So therefore, there's no danger. The environment is secure. Remember, these manufacturers are doing it on behalf of someone else. It's like malware today. There's a whole bunch of different individuals in the supply chain. My specialization at the time was the, the actual plants themselves. So we were going to sites that it was a regular manufacturer who was just breaking the law. It wasn't at risk. But since I came to the U.S., I moved for Microsoft to the U.S. in 2013. I got hauled into a raid where someone was selling product keys. And for some reason, the case was a Homeland Security case. And that's the first time that I've ever seen. I actually wrote up a report afterwards. Um, I was there with a, a Microsoft colleague, and he was ex-FBI. And to him, it was perfectly normal. But to an Irishman who was grown up on American TV, it looked like the real thing. They had an address. Uh, we were going into the address, but there's a briefing beforehand that has a SWAT team and a whole bunch of agents that are going there. Now, we're invited along as the, the analysts, like to, to analyze what they find. But there's this briefing that starts off with, you know, if there's, if there's shootings, here's where the hospitals are. If it's, you know, serious, here's where the helicopters land. You kind of get this mental image built up that you're going to raid a super secure and heavily armed target. In this case, the entire team arrive up and the guy arrives out in his dressing gown. <laughs> and, and his first words to law enforcement was, I haven't counterfeited for a year. <laughs> <laughs> Working that closely with law enforcement was quite a buzz, but all of that was sort of intellectual property crime that I was focused on. And since then, since 2013, 2014, I have changed my focus pretty much entirely 
to protecting Microsoft customers. So taking all of those techniques and you know understanding about the way people behave and looking at behavior of criminals and using data in essence to to look for. I used to look forensically for evidence of did it come from an authorized supply chain or an unauthorized supply chain. We built some special technology to do that with microscopes and image matching and stuff. So taking a lot of those concepts and then applying it to data streams. Is this a normal behavior for this type of data? Where's the anomaly? What's the cause of it? All of those sorts of things. Was there ever a counterfeit example that shocked you that was just so close to truth that you were surprised, like just awed at the counterfeit artistry? Well, I will say absolutely. I'm I'm in awe of the ability for people to make things that look so visually identical. A counterfeit never, they never manufactured things in exactly the same way we did it. So we would emboss a hologram. Uh, The counterfeiters, by and large, produced labels. But boy, were those labels good visual pass-offs. You know, it became, I wouldn't say impossible, but it actually became... You know, you need to put your glasses on to look at the thing and say, oh, yeah, that's counterfeit. But again, that's to someone who has knowledge of the product. Uh, I think a a thing that a lot of people forget, specialists, people who look at this stuff all the time will look at this, oh, but that's, you know, it's missing the T and I got a small eye here and look, this color here's a bit off. To someone who buys this product once every three years or once every two years, there's no buildup of a reference library of, you know what, if it looks good, it must be genuine. And in fact, there's a little sticker on it that says this is genuine. (laughs) Therefore, you're socially engineered into thinking, yes, it's genuine. I I love when you get products from Amazon and a little card comes out that says, this is an authentic product because, you know, we've got the card that says it's an authentic product. The certificate of authenticity, which is a little matchbox uh, yeah. square of cardboard that uh, has yeah. probably been printed yeah. on an inkjet printer and <laughs> cut out with scissors. Yeah. One of the things that criminals are very good at is social engineering people into thinking they're doing the right thing in, in whatever area it is. Like they would give people additional stuff in counterfeit packages and made them feel even better about themselves getting this really good deal online. You know, it, it's just the, the psychology of, of people were just not designed to be suspicious of everything, which is great. But unfortunately for people who work in the space, you get suspicious of everything. So we're rapidly moving away from physical media. My Xbox doesn't even have a doesn't have a disk drive anymore. So it's, you know, it's entirely, it's entirely online digital distribution. But I assume there is still, there are still counterfeiters out there. There are still, you know, it's still probably big business in some parts of the world. Is that, do you still have your finger on the pulse or have you fully uh, left that, that space? I have fully left that space, but absolutely, you know, there, as long as there's a dollar to be made, there will be people in that space, but it's just not, it's just not what Microsoft focus our effort on you know there there will always be people who want to go and pick up a copy of windows on a cd or what i would say is then they know the risks that they're taking you know they're they're self-selecting group you know we always talk about make sure that you're patched and have everything updated and use good password security well you can you can lose all that if you choose to obtain your software 
on a recordable CD where it says, you know, this this is real stuff. You know, especially on a at the OS level, when you're installing an OS from a disk before anything has been turned on and all your signatures have been updated, it, it, it's relatively easy to, to build a device with a lot of malware on it. Therefore, that is an area that I have concerns about is that your supply chain for your hardware is you're not buying the thing that you can get for the cheapest price. You're you're buying from your authorized channel. You're buying from people that are reputable. I think one of the really important things in security is the reputation and you know trustworthiness of your supply chain. So that's not an area that we spend a huge amount of time in, but it certainly is a thing that um, is, is of concern to me. And Donald, I think you've already said this, but to reiterate, the 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 principles and the learning from your time in in forensics and in physical uh, disk manufacturing and 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 anti counterfeit work is that the sort of human psychology and the social engineering that was a big part of that business continues to this day, and you're sort of bringing a lot of those learnings and principles forward, and you're just now applying them to uh, new supply chains and and new technologies. Is that is that accurate? That's accurate. The, the one other thing, we did start to get into what I would consider big data in 2013, 2014, when we started to take activation behavior. So as devices touch Microsoft servers for activation, or validation, starting to do analysis on at, at a large scale. So there were a lot of indications back when that you could identify countries that had relatively high rates of what were considered piracy, and they correlated well with what were encounter rates of malware coming from Defender and the various AV companies. So it started out as a narrative uh, in 2013, 2014, that where you had high piracy rates, you also had high levels of, of security issues on the devices. I think that, is, that has continued to some extent, but now as we move to a more digital and, and hopefully more secure supply chains, that opportunity for people to you know, put large volumes of physical product that have malicious backdoors on them is hopefully being removed. But the skill set that I learned in, you know, analyzing very large volumes of data, that sort of was the start of it. In fact, the Digital Crimes Unit built some analytic environments uh, originally on, you know, on-prem servers, and now we've moved over to Azure that allow us to do very large-scale analytics of huge data sets that was sort of born of our analysis of activation and validation um, six, seven years ago. You've had a couple notable shifts. What else other than your background in analytics has prepared you or have you done to prepare for these changes? Do you have any recommendations to somebody who might be experiencing a similar shift and wants to get up to speed for this type of role? Well, if it's in Microsoft, we are incredibly lucky in that we have some very, very smart people. I'd say that the number one skill set that you need in navigating this is your ability to pick up the phone and talk to someone and admit that you know nothing about it. You really do have to talk to people who have expert knowledge in the area because 
you can be great at cultivating data, but unless you understand really what it means, then at a very, very granular level, not the, not the 101 version of it, but the 201 and 301 version of what do these things mean. And in Microsoft, we also have the people from Microsoft Research. I've been helped enormously on the AI and ML side from people who have done this clustering on short strings there is no magic to any of this. You got to have the data, you got to have the right data, you got to have the cleaned data. But there are tooling that once you have everything that you want, allow you to represent it in a way that is easy to manipulate and, and highlight the things that are important. So I would say, what have I done? I've talked to a lot of people in Microsoft about how they do what they're specialized at. And what about when you're not? working on this stuff what's what do you, what do you like to do donald in your in your spare time and does any of that uh bleed over into your professional life do you uh you like to do your thinking when you're climbing walls or or something that was a terrible example but but what, what do you what do you do for fun well when i'm walking my 150 pound dog who really is a a, a slobbering sweetheart type of dog breed <laughs> he's an anatolian shepherd specifically a kangal so, I have a great Pyrenees, which I believe is a, a distant cousin. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, his name is Pamuk. It's a Turkish breed. And Pamuk means cotton in Turkish. But when I'm walking him, he does kind of, because he's a big dog, I kind of like to think that, you know, hey, if we had a security team that just looked, you know, dangerous, would people mess with our product? So that's one thing that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do like to think about my job when I walk the dog. But I'm also something of an urban farmer. I have three chickens and I like to grow potatoes because I'm an Irishman and turnips and leeks and stuff in my tiny little garden. So, Are your chickens laying at the moment? Because we have ducks and my ducks have gone on strike and I'm not getting any eggs out of them at the moment. I'm wondering <laughs> if, if you're... I know, I know chickens and ducks are, are different birds. I am aware of that, but just wondering if it's... What are you seeing in your, in your chickens? You know, I'm a data guy, so um, we went from one egg per chicken per day in the summer to kind of nothing in the late fall. And then starting, luckily on the 21st of December, we got a, a burst of eggs, and then we now, out of three chickens, I get one a day. I'm not exactly sure which one is doing it. If one is producing all of them, or they're firing every third day, but... <laughs> um, yeah, we're 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 in production again. I think we need some machine learning algorithms to uh, monitor the egg producing habits of chickens and/or ducks to see if we can uh, increase output. Uh, for, for sure, <laughs> it, it, it's the only way to go about it. The, the problem though with AI is we'd need to get about half a million chickens, and then we'd have a pretty good answer. <laughs> well, we definitely thank you for that, Donald, and thanks for joining us again on Security Unlocked. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me back. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and 
senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.